welcome to a special bonus episode of Cinemaholics. That's right, it's been a while since we talked about a television show on Cinemaholics. I guess that hasn't been that long. It's maybe been like a month. But I am so thrilled to talk about one of the biggest shows to hit TV uh, this year, in fact. It's one of HBO's highest rated films in quite a while in terms of viewership. And I have been aching to talk about House of the Dragon spinoff of Game of Thrones, a prequel spinoff, I suppose. But I, I wanted to make sure it's me, John Agroni, of course, in case you forgot, but or John Agroni's Bagliato, I guess I should say. Um, that is a reference. But before I get into all that stuff, I have to bring in somebody who knows their thrones. They, they know they know the world of ice and fire, but a longtime friend of the pod, freelance writer, one of the best film critics I personally know, and you will too, uh, in case it's your first time hearing her talk on the podcast, but it's Julia Tatey. Julia, how are you doing? I'm doing well, John. Thank you for having me back. It's been a minute. It was inevitable. Yeah, um, you know I what? Think, it's it's yeah. felt like it's been 172 years before the birth of Daenerys Targaryen. That's how long it's been. <laughs> That's how long there there have been a lot of time skips in between um, podcast appearances that you've had. Oh, and, definitely. Uh, we need to clean that up. It needs to be a little bit more consistent or a flow. But um, no, we we used to do extra milestone all the time together. I miss talking about classic movies with you, but I think talking about Game of Thrones stuff might be close to. I don't want to say as good, but in the same zone of fun. Oh, yeah. I think we're going to have a grand old time as much as one can have in Westeros. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it, I didn't do too much of the a lead in explanation of House of the Dragon because I, I, I want to start with Game of Thrones. I mean, a lot of people listening will know what Game of Thrones is. It's you know one of the biggest shows of all time. It's one of our next big franchises, I want to say. I mean, if George R. R. Martin, the author of the book series, which is still ongoing, has his way. I mean, he wants to turn this into the next like kind of big cinematic universe sort of thing. And I think he has a, there's a lot of material to do that. And this House of the Dragon show is one of them. But before we get to it, Julia, I got to know about your Game of Thrones sort of backstory. I mean, again, we, we really haven't chatted about this show much. I mean, I messaged you. I was just like, Dragon Show. And you were like, yeah, Dragon Show. But beyond that, <laughs> where, where are you at with Game of Thrones? I mean, were, were you a big fan of the show? Absolutely. I was actually someone who came to the show a little bit later. So I started picking up on it, I think by season four, season three or four, right when it was hmm. really going, reaching its its peak, reaching That's what I came new in. heights. Oh, amazing. But Synergy. I did yeah. <laughs> I did a lot of catch up with the series, much like every other devoted fan became really interested in it. Um, have not read the books, unfortunately, so my fandom is strictly based in the series, but I think that there's room for everyone who loves Game of Thrones, who's of been course. such a fan of it, and so I'm just really excited to see how this series is continuing to expand, just like you said, with Martin continuing to write his book series, but also with the prequel series, I feel like there is yeah. so much so much space to explore so many stories that we could see unfold it's been really great to watch new creative voices return to westeros mm -hmm. it has been exciting because it, I, I think that that was the thing that kind of doomed game of thrones i mean the elephant in the room a little bit is that not everybody really liked how game of thrones ended because it went off book and 
you know, Martin didn't finish the series. So the showrunners kind of kept it going, but it really did feel like the showrunners kind of were done. And I was excited when I heard they were doing prequel stuff because it looked like they were going to get new showrunners. They were going to get fresh voices into this, this universe, which is, I think, what that show Game of Thrones badly needed. I think Game of Thrones probably would have ended a lot better if they had maybe switched to different showrunners who were still invested. It, it just really, you know, I'm speculating, of course, but that's always been my sort of interpretation of what went down there. But I'm glad you mentioned the novels because I do want to say from the top that I have read um, Fire and Blood, and so I kind of know what happens with Dance of the Dragon, uh, with, with what this stuff is based on, but I'm not going to give anything away. We're not really going to talk about really any of the adaptation stuff much, I don't think. I think we're just going to talk about the show strictly. I might bring up a few things if relevant, but that won't be the focus of the conversation. So going into it then with House of the Dragon, what were your expectations, Julia? I mean, what were things that you liked about Game of Thrones that you were hoping maybe came into this new show? Or what were things you were hoping this new show could do differently from Game of Thrones? I think, like so many people, my expectations were pretty high, but also I was hesitant. I was very tepid. I think you mentioned just how much of a letdown a lot of people felt with the series finale of Game of Thrones. It did feel really rushed. I think a lot of people had qualms that were completely valid, and then there were people who really enjoyed it. I think that both positions are very valid but I was one of the few, one of the people who had some frustrations about the series finale so for me it felt like an exciting clean slate these are completely new characters it's a completely new story but it's rooted in something that feels very familiar to so many of us who were fans of Game of Thrones fans of the original series if we want to reference it that way while we're talking about the prequel series so I was excited, but also a little bit tepid and hesitant. However, I feel very happy to say that the series exceeded and met my expectations at various points. By the end of the season finale, I was really satisfied. And I'm just really excited to see how this particular story continues to unfold. Yeah, because... They're they're doing something different with this, and I'm sure we'll get into that and sort of how the format is different. But like you said, there's striking interesting balance between the familiarity of this world, so the things that do feel a little bit like, yeah, it's it's nice to be back in Westeros. But one of the things that I, I really hope we can talk about is some of the changes they made for the better that I think really played Game of Thrones, kind of dated the show quite a bit in many specific ways that I feel like House of the Dragon is an interesting case study in really how showrunners and how franchises can course correct or they can fix previous mistakes by paying attention to the criticisms. And I think this show in very many ways is a, a big step up for those criticisms, at least, even though, yeah, I mean, when the show started and you know, we even had like the same theme song, I was like, this is nice, but okay, like what's, what's going to be different about it? And I think that it, they do choose 
like a totally different like uh a totally different like way in for people with this because where Game of Thrones was like this big sweeping epic based on the novels thing. It was very story driven, very character driven, but it, there was always a huge scope with it. Lots of sidelines, you know, all the characters are in one place in the beginning and then they all spread out. And a lot of the fun of the show is like, oh, when are people going to reunite? And they're going to be so different when they reunite. That is not House of the Dragon. As you kind of quipped earlier, House of the Dragon is a prequel that takes place a hundred and what was it, 170 years before Daenerys Targaryen is born. Something like that. I might have the numbers slightly off, but it's around it's it's a long time. Like you said, new characters, totally new storylines, but they're characters that the books kind of reference a little bit, but the show doesn't really. Like I feel like if you watch just the show, I don't think you really get any of this information, which is nice. And another nice thing too is that there is an ending so we don't have to worry about you know any of that discourse of like well what are they going to do if you know martin doesn't finish in time well we know what happens uh we obviously don't want to get spoiled if you haven't read the fire and blood but in regards to the setup of this show what do you think the show is ultimately about because the plot of it is pretty basic you know we have a bunch of targaryens it's a targaryen dynasty at the height of their power and it is essentially a succession war. It's a family drama between all of these various Targaryen, you know, cousins and siblings and nieces and nephews who are essentially in constant conflict over who will get the Iron Throne. So it has that sort of similarity to Game of Thrones, but it's very much more focused, not as many locations, mostly King's Landing and a couple of new places and a Dragonstone, of course. But yeah, if you take all that stuff away, what what do you think this show is really about? Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the things I loved the most about this first season in particular is how House of the Dragon really introduces the politics behind Game of Thrones and within the world of Game of Thrones. I loved the kind of intimacy that we got by just sticking to a couple of families. We have the Targaryens, like you mentioned, the Valerians, as well as the High Towers, and seeing all of those relationships undulate throughout the first season was so interesting. But I think where House of the Dragon sets itself apart from Game of Thrones is that it really does focus on the politics at hand within this first season. It almost feels like a preamble to the epic set pieces we're probably going to see in the second season and in seasons after that. So we get a sense of where everyone stands and how everyone is maneuvering this medieval chessboard. I think that it's done so, so well. And to bring in new directors and writers, but then to also have the series rooted in something familiar with the inclusion of Miguel Sapochnik in the first season. You know, he directed a few of the episodes from Game of Thrones originally. He won an Emmy Award. And George R. R. Martin is working very closely with Ryan J. Condal, who's also still involved with the series. Martin is himself quite involved with this prequel series. So it's been really great to see how this first season in particular, we will probably be able to discuss further seasons as they come out, hopefully. But it's great to see how this first season takes its time and almost feels like gives us chapters from a book. You know, these moments that we get to see each episode that is setting the stage for the Dance of the Dragons. Yeah. So we should we should say then specifically the the main showrunner here, as you mentioned, is Ryan Condal, who worked on the original show. 
and he he wrote a few episodes. Uh, Miguel Sapochnik, I mean, you know, he directed a few episodes in this new season. Like you said, I mean, he's he's somebody who is getting acclaim and opportunities outside of HBO and Game of Thrones because, I mean, uh, his work on Battle of the Bastards the, is just uh, truly one of the the all time great TV. Uh, battle scenes. Uh, I think a lot of people will say, you know, that would probably be part of his legacy. And it, it is interesting to see he was a co-showrunner for a while, but it looks like Sapochnik will be moving on to other things. And then Condal, I think, I, I don't know if they're going to have a, another showrunner uh, joining him, but uh, for now, I do get the sense because I, I don't know about you, but I do watch like the inside the episode stuff that they do afterward. And there to me is such a departure in terms of like, you know, the Benioff and Weiss, who did the original Game of Thrones, when when they did the inside the episodes, you could really tell that like toward the end, they they were kind of just you know it felt a little bit obligatory to me. But Condal, I think is is certainly I I feel like is very refreshed by this material, and you can just really sense that he has a passion for telling the story start to finish. That I'm I'm just personally happy to see. Um, but yeah, you know the the characters here, I, I wanted to talk you know mainly about who. Who, you, who really sticks out to you because, you know, that's the thing that I think separates this show from the other big high profile, you know, fantasy, high fantasy uh, prequel, uh, which is Rings of Power, which I know you've been watching, but uh, and also had its finale recently. Uh, I haven't really watched Rings of Power yet. And and one of the reasons I got to tell you, because people have asked me, it's like, well, what are you waiting for? You like Lord of the Rings? And I do. Um, I think Tolkien, of course, he's one of the main inspirations for George R. R. Martin. Martin has talked so often and so brightly about how Tolkien, what Tolkien means to him. And uh, obviously like Tolkien was the forerunner to a lot of fantasy authors that I love, but I think what makes me more immediately interested in house of the dragon, even though I know what's going to happen and everything, I, I just love how it's not black and white. And I love how these characters, they're driven more by, like the conflict is driven way more by motivation to me than the sort of prototypical fantasy series where a lot of it is, you know, we know who the bad guys are. We know who the villains are. We know who the heroes are. It's just sort of a matter of watching them clash and watching the heroes do their best to save the day. Whereas House of the Dragon, yeah, you mentioned it. It's, it's the politics of it. And that was one of my trepidations going into this show is like, well, how are they going to make the politics of this interesting? Because we've, we've gotten it before. We've gotten the Lannisters versus the Starks. But I think where that was very much based on the War of the Roses, where it was, you know, clearly, you know, the uh, the York and Lancasters, I think it was, uh, and then our actual history. House of the Dragon, of course, is borrowing from other historical, you know, accounts that clearly influenced Martin in his writing. And and I, I think that a lot of that is still echoing into these well-rounded characters. I want to know what you think of our two characters who play, or two actors who play uh, arguably the main protagonists of this this show, um, and and that is Princess Rhaenyra. And the two actors who play Rhaenyra, uh, first we see her as kind of like a, a young adult, like a teenager, played by Millie Alcock. And then Emma Darcy takes over later on when we have the time jumps and everything. So so what do you think of our main protagonists and some of the supporting players as well? Yeah, I think Rhaenyra is such a great character. It's been so fun throughout the first season to see that character's trajectory and how we get to sort of chart her journey from when she is about 13 or 14 years old at the beginning of the season up until Rhaenyra is probably within her either late 20s or early 30s, it would seem. 
it's been so great to see how Alcock set such a firm foundation for the type of character Rhaenyra is going to be. And then with Emma Darcy, how they really play into the internalization of their character and really play with the intertextuality of what is happening there. I think, especially we got to see in the last episode, I'm so glad that you mentioned the um, post-episode chats with the creators and the creative team behind it, because I think Emma Darcy offers such a fascinating perspective on Princess Rhaenyra, especially from where we leave Princess Rhaenyra at the end of season one. This is a character who fluctuates and undulates, and I loved what Emma Darcy said about how Rhaenyra, by the time we get to the end of the season, has been waiting for a letter for a lifetime, is what Darcy says of the character. And thinking of that in such eloquent but also such simple terms adds such depth and provides even more insight into Rhaenyra's motivations throughout the series. It's been so great to see how these actors approach this particular character at different points in Princess Rhaenyra's life, and I think that it just sets a very firm and strong foundation for what we're going to see in later seasons. Absolutely. So I, I guess that gets then into... My my only real criticism of the show that like really like is still irking me because obviously there's there's certain things that happened throughout the show that I wasn't the biggest fan of but I, I was able to sort of be like you know what I'm with you you know I, I know some people haven't really liked the time skips I, I get it because I I do like. I do understand that the time skips can make things feel a little bit rushed. They can feel a little bit like, well, I, I kind of want to see these relationships develop a bit more before we jump to everything feeling kind of settled. But ultimately, I accepted it because I was like, it really fits the story. So I, I don't have huge issues with it. The thing that I do struggle with, though, and I'm curious where you stand on this, because we, we have been known to disagree, you know, feverishly. So I, who knows? This could be another opportunity for that. But like I said before, I, I like that, you know, the story's never been very black and white, you know, contrary to the house of black and white from Bravos, it, it's always been like morally gray. And I think that it still is that with princess Rhaenyra and then also her childhood friend who she's mainly in conflict with. And that is queen Alicent uh, portrayed by Olivia cook as an adult and, you know, moving forward and then portrayed by Emily Carey in the early episodes. And I think the show is really positioning it in two different conflicting ways, at least for me. And that's, you're not, you're supposed to sort of feel like, ah, you know, it's tragic because you want the greens, which are kind of team Allison and her children that she has with Rhaenyra's father. Uh, you want, you want them to get along. You want, you don't want there to be all this conflict with the blacks who sort of represent Rhaenyra's side because the main plot is that her father names her his heir in order to prevent his younger brother from uh, Damon, played by Matt Smith, and the father played the king, played by Patty Constantine. They wanted to sort of prevent Damon from taking over one day because he's a bit of a reckless, hot-headed, he could be the next, you know, evil, you know, mad Targaryen king. And uh, what they do then is the sort of like unprecedented, we're going to name a woman as an heir. So then a lot of the show is about like women in power, but various stages of power and how that interacts and how that ultimately ends up in conflict. Um, and specifically how women in power 
it within a patriarchal system, how that breathes like seemingly unending conflict that really like gets to the heart of what really like drives apart these two characters. And I think all of that's great. My criticism comes in with, I, I just think that the greens are so hard to root for that. I, I feel like at this point, I'm only really like, I'm firmly team Rhaenyra. And I don't understand how anyone can look at the show and be like, Oh, you know, this is, Clearly, like I, I feel like the greens got to go green all the way. Or somebody who might say, like, oh, I just feel like both sides are tragically misunderstood. Maybe more people are in that position. But what about you? I would say for myself, I'm definitely on the side of Rhaenyra. I think, I think that she's such a fascinating character to root for. I think that you know, at the end of the day, she was named heir. We, as the audience, know that that was her father's wish, his dying wish. He thought that he was speaking to his daughter when he was dying, but unfortunately, lines got crossed, and Alicent makes an assumption that what he is talking about, which is the prophecy of the Song of Ice and Fire, which is the Aegon I's dream that he has his vision about everything that we will eventually see in Game of Thrones— but we know that Viserys always wanted Rhaenyra to take the Iron Throne. Bearing that in mind, I think it makes it pretty clear, at least from my perspective, that she is the person worth rooting for if we're going to take it on a binary position. But like you said, nothing is black and white in this series and everything is up for conflict. I think that there is a really interesting exchange that happens in one of the final episodes, I believe it's the second to last episode, actually, where Alicent is talking to Princess Rhaenys, who, more background on her, she's played by Emma Best, and she actually offered her name to be placed on the Iron Throne with all likelihood, potentially should have been placed on the Iron Throne instead of King Viserys. And so in this scene where Alicent is talking to Princess Rhaenys after the death of King Viserys, Princess Rhaenys says to Alicent, haven't you ever imagined yourself on the Iron Throne? And Queen Alicent says something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, but she does say something to the effect of, we cannot rule, but we can guide the men who do. And I think that that offers such an interesting complication to the sexual politics and the gender politics behind this series. And I think adds such an interesting depth to the politicking that's at play in this first season. It's another one of those small, intimate exchanges that adds so much to the season, adds so much to the series, and provides such a firm foundation for what we'll see in episodes to come. And again, I think also provides a really great preamble so that we have all the politics. We know what we're working with in season one. In later seasons and episodes, then we can move on to those epic battle scenes. Yeah, like the way I, I see it is that when you had Game of Thrones and you had the sort of the Lannisters who are so easy to hate, right? It does remind me of in this show, we have Kristen Cole, we have, you know, Aegon the not the younger that's the other Aegon but this Aegon Aegon the second I guess they call him in this uh, because Aegon the Conqueror was way before 
And we have Amon, or not Amon, was it Amon? Yeah, he's Amon. Vaymond is the Valarian one. It's a whole thing. Um, and then, yeah, you have Queen Allison. And I just think that they're all very, like, evil. Or, or not evil, but I just feel like they're all very bad, I guess. Like, the, you know, I think the black characters, like, I mean black in terms of allegiance, they they're just i feel like a, a lot more sympathetic i guess is what i'm getting at um even you know we have laris a character who literally murders his entire you know, not his entire family but his father and his brother and the, this is that's the side that sort of we're rooting against i guess but i guess when i look at game of thrones it's like you had the lannisters who were really bad and they were really horrific but they had Tyrion. you know i, I always felt like I could easily sort of see the Lannisters be like, you know what, maybe they should win <laughs> because they have a better chance of dealing with this White Walker situation. I felt that at certain points of that show. I'm not really getting that with this. I'm just sort of getting, you know, one side is clearly wrong, one side is clearly good. But I guess it is conflicting because it reminds me of something that was discussed in Game of Thrones that I think guides a lot of this show's ethos, which is, you know, loves the death of duty. That's what Mr. Amon says to Jon Snow at one point. And, you know, he's he's trying to get across to him that, you know, love is going to get in the way of doing your duty. And and this show very much shows that love gets in the way of a lot of people's duties in this. And, you know, it's it's one thing that it's one of the first thing that drives a wedge between the Valarions and King Viserys in terms of, you know, him choosing Alicent instead of, uh, I forget her name, Lena, I think, was the uh, the younger Valerian. Um, the the daughter of Corlys, and uh, I think you said uh, for Princess Rainey's, uh, her name, the actor is Eve Best. I, I, I think you might have said Emma Best, but um, yeah. In in terms of like love getting in the way of things, we see it a lot with Princess Rhaenyra too, because her character, you know, she's sort of in a arranged forced marriage with somebody who you know, isn't really able to produce an heir with her. And so she has a different sort of relationship outside of that uh, in order to produce the heirs. And then that causes all kinds of problems. And that to me is like the main conflict, which is an interesting conflict, which is Allison resents Rhaenyra because Allison ch chooses duty. She didn't choose love. You know, she doesn't love Viserys in that way. Um, although that's arguable in terms of like, you know, she clearly had a bond with him, you know, not romantically, but you know, uh, but she, she made all these sacrifices for the sake of duty. She was a bit of a Jon Snow. Right. Uh, and I think that that's the way in with that character to make her compelling. And I, I'm still waiting to see the show get into that more because I see, I totally see her motivation behind distrusting Rhaenyra, somebody who just does what she wants to do. So why wouldn't she assume that Rhaenyra could be a threat to her uh, children, right? I think that I'm just going to say with this, because we do start so small and because there is such a concentration on just a certain number of characters, we do have a lot more time to understand the complexity behind their motivations. So there is nuance to each of these characters, and it's not as simple as well, clearly these are the people we should be rooting against. Clearly these are the folks that we should not be rooting against. If anything, I find that one of the very few characters who unanimously we can all kind of root against is Otto Hightower, who I find Yeah, I'm is, with you there. Yeah, yeah, I think that his motivations are clearly and purely trying to get control, trying to find more power, getting to a point where he becomes a famed usurper, 
And to the point where he is kind of willing to pit his daughter against her childhood friend, use ways of manipulation in order to kind of keep his daughter in line, so to speak, or once he sees that she is capable of such cruelty, to use that to his advantage. And I won't be surprised if that's something that we continue to see as the series goes on. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm curious what you make of the show's success so far, because you know it, it started off strong um, in terms of ratings. Uh, the second episode was the highest rated episode of the season. It dropped off a bit from there. You know, third episode wasn't as big of a hit, but then you know it, it kept crawling up and up and up and up. It, it sort of faced a dip uh, around episode seven, which was. Uh, or episode eight, I should say, Lord of the Tides. So that's the episode where we kind of jump ahead again. And um, they're, they're trying to sort of like make sure that Lucerus, the second son of Princess Rhaenyra, it, you know, gets his uh, succession to Driftmark. And then the last two episodes, like the next episode after that, the Green Council, which was uh, where, as we record this uh, a little over a week ago, that was, I think, the lowest rated episode of the whole season. And then it all blasted off back to episode 10, which was quite high. So we're going to get another season. It's going to be a while. We're probably not going to get the next season until 2024. Uh, it could be as late as the fall of 2024. It could be a little bit earlier. Like we got this season in August. Possible we could get it in the summer or spring, um, but we don't know yet. Uh, are, are you looking forward to it, though? I mean, do you think that the show... You know, what are some things you're hoping to see in season two, you know, maybe that uh, continue on uh, and, you know, and get, like the quality from this season or maybe some things you think that they could address? Totally. I think one of the things that I'm looking forward to seeing and that I think we probably will see a lot more of in the next season is a lot more action sequences. And I'm not just talking about to dragons battling in the sky. I think that we're really going to get into some of the nitty gritty, more visceral scenes and sequences that Game of Thrones became so well known for in the battles that happen. Of course, we are ready for all out war by the end of the first season. Blood has been spilt. Um, and it's very clear that Princess Rhaenyra is kind of ready to unleash the dragons and ready to go. We'll see if King's Landing is prepared for that. But I think one of the things we can definitely look forward to seeing is more action sequences, more battle sequences. I think that a few of the questions that we have left at the end of season one lean into that. Will King's Landing be ready? How will the Greens prepare? Who's going to pay for Lucerus's death? Will it be how will Aemond kind of own up to that if he ever does? Who told Damon about Luke's fate uh, over Storm's End? I think that there are a lot of questions that all point to the answer of war. And it seems that that's where we're headed for the next season, at least. Yeah, I did appreciate that that sort of extra touch they did at the end where it is canonical that Aemond actually didn't, you know, intend to kill Lucerus. That's something from the books that the because as I should mention, you know, Fire and Blood, it's like an in-universe textbook. It's purposely an unreliable narrator because they're all secondhand accounts being organized by a maester. And so the account of how Lucerus dies, per, you know, purposefully is 
you know, the interpretation that everybody has based on, you know, of course, you know, Eamon then went and he, he killed Lucerus with his dragon. But, you know, the show is the more objective, you know, resource of that. There's so much interesting stuff there, uh, I think, lurking uh, for people to dig into in terms of like the relationship between adaptation and, you know, second person writing and this sort of like, you know, tomb that uh, Martin put together to sort of, you know, influence the show. Uh, and I think it's, I think it's all very interesting stuff, but uh, I do want to know your favorite character. I've been getting a lot of flack for mine. I will explain, but uh, my, my favorite character, my problematic fave, I gotta say is, is Matt Smith as, as Damon Targaryen who I think is a, a major presence, a major, you know, driving plot character in the early parts of the season. He kind of drifts the, more to the sidelines in a very interesting way. And I really like him because, you know, it's not that I like what he does. He is a bad person. He's kind of our, I think, uh, in many ways, our Jamie Lannister of the show, where I think that he is very, very rough around the edges. But he has g good reasons for why he is the way he is and sort of unlayering his character, I think is a lot of fun and he's very unpredictable. And he gets a moment that really sold me early on in the show in the Stepstones battle sequence. I think the first major conflict we get, they're really cemented for me who this guy is and why he, he operates the way he does. I don't like, again, a lot of the things he does in this show, it can be very hard to watch, but uh, what about you? Who is your favorite character? I hope, I hope you have a less problematic fave than I do. Yeah, I've been really loving watching some of the female characters on this uh, on this show so far. Again, I mentioned Princess Rhaenyra. I think Emma Darcy is such a star, and they give such a wonderful performance as the older Princess Rhaenyra. I love seeing that story play out, and I just love the inner work that you can definitely see Darcy doing as they're playing this role. I've been a fan of Olivia Cook for a while since um, oh, me, and Earl and the me and Earl and the Dying Girl. So it's been really great to watch her come into this new character. Um, and then with, um, and you corrected me, thank you for doing that on Eve Best. Love seeing Princess Renice sort of in this position now where she's just kind of on the sidelines and she's kind of seeing how everything work plays out. I think that it's really interesting to see a character who probably rightfully should have been in King Viserys's position and see the way that she maneuvers this new conflict. I think watching her story is going to be so interesting and so fascinating. And yeah, I just love watching those three characters. I think that there's going to be a lot of fascinating conflict that happens between the three of them. And just great performances, too. Yeah, you covered a lot of the really great ones. I mean, when Emma Darcy came onto the scene, their entire introductory sequence, you know, with the childbirth scene, a lot of childbirth scenes in this season, and very much, I think, um, kind of alluding to what I was talking before, from the perspective from the woman actually giving birth, which is a bit different from what we've seen in Game of Thrones prior. But... Yeah, just the way that they were able to sort of portray the the anguish of that moment, that one take shot. I think it was episode six, I want to say. I'll double check. Um, yeah, episode six, when she gives birth to uh, Joffrey. And that is such a just un knockout scene. I, I immediately, I was because I was worried. I was like, I really like Millie Alcock. I like what she's doing with this character. 
And I'm not as familiar with Emma Darcy, but they seem just really talented. So, okay, what's going to happen? There, yeah, there we go. <laughs> we, we were off to the races. It was fantastic. And I was really impressed by Patty Considine. I, not a character I was very much like thinking was going to be with us for as long as he was. I was kind of wondering if, you know, I thought that they might do more of like the Dance of the Dragons in this season, but they actually did. You know, I know I said they they kind of rushed through with the time skips, but no, actually, when you really look at it, they they did take their time because they they sort of like gave us more, you know, info into him and sort of his reluctance to be a ruler, and he had his own quirks, and I just think that that actor, I mean, in his last episode, episode eight, truly, truly stand up performance there as well. I, th- I think everybody here is just very, very good. Um, I, and I, for people listening who, you know, if if you liked uh, Olivia Cook in this, or if you liked me or the Dying Girl, I mean, I think my favorite performance from her is in Thoroughbreds, which I, I very much loved that movie. Uh, I'm not sure if you're a fan, but uh, either way, I, I just think that she's uh, truly terrific. And we have we don't see enough of her these days. I think the last thing I want to say I saw her in was um, Ready Player One. That might have been the last thing, which uh, unfortunate, um, but okay. So. I, I had a couple other things I wanted to ask you about. I don't want to miss anything, but I also know that like we could we could talk about House of the Dragon for a long, long, long time, um, and uh, we probably don't want to do that. But uh, I, I was going to ask you about something kind of specific that's been on my mind in terms of like what what's good about this show in, in, when it comes to um, I, I think some of the casting because. It, they're sort of like casting a lot of British actors here and they're also sort of like doing the recasting and everything of the kids. Do you think though that like, and, and I, I didn't mention Risa Fon, but you know, I, I, Risa Afons, I think he says his name, who plays Otto Hightower. He does a good job. You know, I don't like his character, but uh, you know, in terms of like the casting of the, the younger characters, so specifically like Jaceris, uh, we have like the young Aegon. Um, I don't have their names in front of me, but uh, could, I, I could look those up because I don't want to leave them out. But uh, like the young kids, you know, who are going to be like the main sort of like conflict drivers of the next season, it looks like uh, who who's sticking out to you. And and what do you think? You know, do you think they are going to sort of inherit a lot of the show or do you think it's going to still st- keep its focus on Rhaenyra moving forward? Like, what do you want to see? Yeah, I think that in one of the post episode features, I believe it was Ryan Kondo who did talk about how, as they're introducing the kids of Alicent Hightower and Princess Rhaenyra's kids as well, you're starting to see how trauma and pain from Alicent and Rhaenyra's generation is going to pass on to their kids and how that conflict is going to pass on to their kids and the tension between them is going to live within them quite literally just live in their blood and in their bones. And I think that we're going to see quite a lot of that. I mean, I'm not sure what the plans are in terms of how many seasons. I think I had heard potentially four seasons of this series. I don't want to say anything definitive, but they don't know. (laughs) We could see this continue on for the next couple hundreds of years in terms of the world of Westeros, leading us all the way up to Daenerys. So I think we could go through the whole family tree. We could see how everything is so rooted in this first season and then just continues to spread and spiral out throughout the next hundred years. It's, It's just so interesting to see. And I think what 
this this first season does so so well is show those intimate ties and how they are bound and broken. Yeah, I think it was a very smart idea, I think, to do this show next. I know they originally were to do, they had a couple other shows that were on the bubble and they, they still might make, uh, I think the one that they were going to make before was the one about uh, Nymeria, who is like the Dornish, uh, basically the, the person from Essos who goes to Dorn and kind of sets all that stuff up. Um, she's the character that Arya uh, names her direwolf after. And they reference Nymeria in the show too, uh, I think in the first episode. But, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, they have the Long Night, of course. They have Aegon's Conquest. They have Duncan Egg, which is still like an ongoing thing that Martin is, you know, writing for. They have so many different like places in the world of ice and fire where they can go with this. I mean, I, I'm actually a little annoyed. I don't like the idea of a Jon Snow sequel series because I'm like, well, hold on. I, I feel like we got Jon Snow. I, I mean, I love Kit Harrington, but I feel like I'm kind of done with the A Song of Ice and Fire saga at this point. I think we got it. Um, if we got more Jon Snow and Arya, I'm for sure going to tune in. But uh, what about you? I mean, what, where does your interest lie the most with the future of this series, this franchise? Uh, because I think after this show, it's looking brighter than I think it was. Yeah, I think that there is a lot of opportunity to see how this will continue to grow. Right now, I'm really focused on House of the Dragon. I'm sort of a one series at a time type of gal. <laughs> so I'm going to stick to Fair House enough. of the Dragon right now and really look forward to what can unfold in the next season. As for any spinoffs and sequel series and potential projects moving forward, It'll be interesting to see how everything plays out and how everything starts to get connected. Yeah. Um, I think that the Game of Thrones universe, it's so interesting that we get to kind of live and grow along with it because we we saw it as, as it first came out and now we get to be a part of watching it continue to grow and seeing that universe expand. There's so much room to explore different parts of Westeros and the Seven Kingdoms. But it'll be interesting to see how each series pulls from Game of Thrones and what made it such a remarkable series, what made it such a huge touchstone in popular culture. And to recapture that is going to be so difficult. But I think if House of the Dragon can tell us anything, trying something different and t kind of almost stripping away the artifice of those huge battle sequences and really getting down to the bare bones of the politics and what is happening in terms of the conflict between these characters, I think that we have a lot to look forward to. And with Martin being as involved as he is, I hope that he continues to stick to the stories that he wants to tell, doesn't bend to what anyone else sort of wants to see from him, and just continues to grow that universe as much as he would like to. Yeah, this is definitely to what you're saying. One of the rare times I'm not horrified by how many producers are attached to this, because <laughs> I, I do get the sense that like, I, this is the last thing I want to bring up, and then you know, we can, of course call it a day and then we'll maybe reconvene in a couple of years for <laughs> season two. But I, I, I touched on this earlier. I just like that. It seems to me like they really took a look at what people were saying that they didn't like about the ending of game of Thrones, but also things that game of Thrones 
notoriously did for years. Um, I think one of the one of the hardest things for me, like staying with the show, there were times I really considered stopping with it because, you know, there were specific scenes like like violence against women, assaults, the way it was portrayed. Not that those things can't be in media, but there were just times where it felt voyeuristic. It did not feel like it was really considered and it was, you know, being thoughtful and considerate about what it was saying. There was just a lot of that. It felt very like, especially toward the end of the show, it was just there for shock value. Um, and it was just there to be the next big WTF moment for people to speculate on. Like they were just trying to create those moments out of thin air. And that to me got very tiring. And, and you know, I was like, you know what? People are going to enjoy that and their show. I, I don't have to be a part of it. And so I went into House of the Dragon worried that there might be more of that. But that's one of the things that's impressed me the most is that I just don't get that same sort of thing. I know some people will disagree. And, you know, there are some scenes that, that are really hard to watch, very brutal to watch. But I think specifically with the gay characters in this season, um, specifically Lenor, and um, also you know we you know mentioning the childbirth scenes again, I do think there is like a little bit more of a respect for you know how to like do that from a, a point of view that uh, you know centers the person being victimized instead of like you know the camera being an observer if that makes sense. It's a lot to get into, and we don't have to spend a ton of time on it or anything. I just. I, I did see a, a, an improvement, not perfect improvement, but certainly a huge improvement for me that makes me feel more comfortable uh, liking this show than I was before, just me personally. And uh, I, I just think that there was a real effort, you know, made. And I think that that speaks to the value of criticism, you know, and, and critics in general who were saying this and writing about this and making, you know, in some cases like YouTube video essays that are like four hours long, really getting unraveling like what the problem is there and why it, it keeps people from enjoying things the way they can be enjoyed. And it seems to me like they listened. And so that's really cool to see. Yeah, I agree. And again, this kind of goes back to what you were saying about how the creative team behind House of the Dragon may or may not have picked up on some of the criticisms of Game of Thrones, especially in latter seasons. But they are, you can tell that there is a little bit more consideration to try something that is more intimate, is a little bit more thoughtful in terms of the positionality of the characters that they are putting on screen. And it isn't perfect. I know you and I, we both have our criticisms and our qualms with some of the things that we bore witness to watching this first season. But it does provide me with a little bit of hope that potentially these are lessons that will be learned from the first season that maybe might be a little bit more positively spun in this in episodes to come. But regardless, it is really interesting to I think that it just continues to play to how House of the Dragon is trying something different. And they really clearly are trying to move the needle forward, whereas Game of Thrones might have stagnated at a certain point. I couldn't agree more. And uh, uh, lot, lots of moments in the first season where I was just like, oh, no, not that. Why do we have to do that with the... No. <laughs> but yeah, like you said, though, it, it yeah, I, I certainly am very optimistic, much more so than I was before. I was I was kind of wondering, is like, is this going to be a big failure? Is this going to be like, you know, because it's happened so often where a spinoff is just going to crater, be dead on arrival. But it really hasn't been. I think people have been likening this to the success of something like Better Call Saul, you know, and uh, not sure that I've watched yet, uh, <laughs> with much to the chagrin of co-host Will Ashen, who's a huge fan and really enjoyed how the show ended, I believe. But uh, yeah, in terms of like that was a very successful prequel in terms of 
you know, continuing in the engagement and the interest in the show, but expanding upon it despite being a prequel, it's really hard to do. Prequels are much, much harder to do than sequels in a lot of respects. And uh, oh, yeah, I do have one bit of uh, not a correction, but more of like some extra context. I didn't mention this before, but the series premiere, uh, it was the biggest in HBO's history. So I kind of buried the lead there. <laughs> it was it was a lot of people, 10 million viewers. So want to get that across that uh, Game of Thrones is not um, is not going anywhere anytime soon. And I, I am I am interested in how it's going to sort of, like you said, sort of kind of grow and evolve over time. I do think that, you know, we, I don't think I've seen anything that matches the highest highs of Game of Thrones for me. We haven't really gotten like a Red Wedding, for example, that has really made me sort of rethink, you know, uh, the way that a story can be told in like long form episodic television. But uh, we certainly have gotten other moments that have really gotten close to some of the best moments, I think. Um, that's a very weird sentence that I just said, but I hope it made sense. And uh, with that, the last thing, Julia, I, I wanted to make sure you had a chance to plug something that you you wrote for the Daily Beast, a byline, new byline alert. And uh, I, I'm very, very proud to see this. I'm looking at the page right now. It's fantastic. Uh, yeah, give it, give it all you got. Yeah, so... If you ever want to read some of my work, I recently appeared with The Daily Beast um, talking about seven questions that I have following the season finale of House of the Dragon. Cover everything from dragons to that gemstone in Eamon's eyeball. Read at your pleasure. It was a joy to write. <laughs> it's really great. And uh, I'm not going to answer any of these questions because they are rhetorical. <laughs> so. Um, I, I held back because I was just like, oh, I want to say it, but it's like, no, you, you didn't read Fire and Blood, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, but also, if you're you're listening and you're just like, I like to read, reading is fine, but uh, I like the sound of y'all's voices, uh, Julia's voice in particular. Um, I actually, I don't know if your voice is what plays when you hit the listen to article, is it? Because there is that. It's not, but boy, oh boy, would that be fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's your writing voice. We'll say that. Um, but that's available too, if you want to listen to the article. So check that out. It's on dailybeast.com. We'll link it in the show notes along with Julia's Twitter. Well, Julia, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk about House of the Dragon. It was, as expected, a total blast. I can't wait for the next season, and uh, but we'll have to anyway. Uh, but yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate hearing your point of view on this one. Of course. It was a joy being here. Thank you so much for having me.